Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to have you join us online this morning. I hope you're nice and warm and comfy in your house because it's freezing in here this morning. I'm like cold. So I don't know what that is, but I find it icy in here today. So anyways, hope you're doing well. Great to have you join us. Uh, if you're with us for the first time or checking us out online, it's great to, yeah, again, have you. Welcome. And we'd love to be in contact with you and all those sorts of things. So glad you would check us out. And um, Glad that we could celebrate uh, the Christmas season. Yeah, I guess, like I said, it's, uh, it looks Christmassy in here, and it feels like it, like there should be snow on the ground to me. But anyways, um, yeah, this morning we've uh, lit the candle of peace in celebration of this Advent season. And um, just a couple things I wanted to let you know about. First one is this. We're going to have communion today, okay? So if you're at home, uh, you want to take the time to get organized, send somebody into the kitchen, grab something for elements. Uh, you got some grape juice and some bread at home, that would be perfect. And uh, we're going to celebrate at the end of our service, the Lord's Supper. We'll lead you in that and you can partake at home. And then the second thing is I uh, just want to let you know we're, we're gathering tonight for prayer at 7 o'clock. And just continuing on, this is... Uh, we're going to have done 30 days of prayer as of tomorrow, and I'm thankful to the Lord for that. It's uh, the first time that's ever happened at our church, and I think it's been good. And so just uh, leave you with those couple things. Get your communion ready and let you know about uh, prayer tonight. And then if you got your Bibles, we're going to the book of Judges, to chapter 8. We're going to pick up the story of Gideon, okay? So as we're going there, let's let's pray this morning. I want to just pray for our provincial leaders, too, and those who are, are seeking to lead our nation through the things that are happening in the world and so, and here. So let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, just thank you today for the opportunity to spend time with you, to be able to connect as best as we can via this online format. And Lord, we just ask your blessing on this. I pray, God, that people's hearts would be strengthened and encouraged in the midst of everything that's going on. Lord, we just... Uh, look up. We, we look to you, Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, that your word tells us to fix our eyes upon you. And so, Lord, we are doing that today. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we consider our nation and our province and our community, Lord, we just want to lift up to you our federal leaders, our provincial leaders, our local community leaders. God, just praying that you would give them wisdom that you would give them direction, God, that they would know your heart and your mind in the midst of all of the things that are going on in this world, Lord, that you'd bless them, that you'd protect them, that you'd pour out safety upon their lives, Lord, and uh, that you would surround them, God, with wise counsel. We pray for their salvation, Jesus, that they would come to faith in you, that they would look to you, that they would call out upon the name of the Lord uh, for guidance and direction. So, Lord, we just pray for our leaders, and Lord, we pray uh, for our time in the word of God. I thank you that we could come and spend this time, Lord, to break the bread of the word, and we pray, God, that the spiritual man would be fed inside, that we would be sustained, that we would be nourished by your word. Jesus, we come this morning to sit at your feet, hear you speak, and to draw close to you. And so, God, may your spirit anoint this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, sweet. We are in Judges chapter 8. And if you got your Bibles, go there. We're returning to the story of Gideon. And so let me remind you where we've been at. We've been spending a couple weeks looking at the story of Gideon. And Gideon, as we saw last week in chapter 7, uh, we, we, we looked at the great Bible story of the battle against the Midianites. It's outstanding. If you don't know it, I encourage you to go read Judges chapter 7 because God's people were outnumbered. 450 to 1. They had an army of 300 against 135,000 uh, Midianite soldiers. And God's people were equipped with a, a clay pitcher, a torch, and a trumpet. That's all they had. And they surrounded their enemy, the Midianites, down in the valley who were there under the cover of darkness in their camp. And God's, these 300 men uh, surrounded this army on the hillsides and at the command of their uh, leader Gideon, they threw those pitchers to the ground, smashed them to pieces, pulled out their torches, blew their trumpets, and shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Lord caused the Midianite camp 
to fall into total confusion. They turned their swords on one another. The Bible says that they butchered one another. It's brutal, but that's what it tells us. And as we saw in chapter 7, what happened is this, is that the two generals of the Midianite army escaped, but they fled into the region of the tribe of Ephraim, the Israelite tribe of Ephraim, and they were killed by the people of Ephraim. And and we're going to read here that about 15,000 of this army of 135,000, 15,000 of them escape with the two Midianite kings, and Gideon is going to continue in this chapter his pursuit of these kings and the remnant of the Midianite army. So the war is won. Here's what I would tell you. That's what's happened. As we come to uh, Judges chapter 8, the war is won. Uh, Victory is in the hands of God's people. They just have got to tie up some loose ends, and Gideon's got to lead them in that. And Gideon's such a great character. When we're introduced to him in the Bible, we we see this in Judges chapter 6. He's a man who, for fear of the enemy, is hiding in a wine press, but the angel of the Lord comes and visits him, and he's reluctant to the Lord's call. He doesn't trust himself or his competence, but he begins and learns to trust the Lord. He learns to act on the word of God, and by the time we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see this. Uh, Well, we're not going to quite go to the end of this chapter, but we're going to get close. Uh, How come I snorted? I just snorted. I don't usually do that, but I did it. So what was that, hey? We're not going to quite get to the end of this chapter, but uh, we're going to see that that this guy Gideon has learned to act on the word of God, to trust the word of God, but we're going to also watch an interesting thing for him as he is going to deal with the various realities of being victorious and winning a battle and the battles that come after the battles. That's what this chapter is about. And by the time we get to the end of this chapter, and it'll, we'll, we'll stretch it a little bit into next week as well, we're going we're gonna to see a guy who is almost building something for his own glory. And it's kind of tragic towards the end here. Uh, the glory of God seems to be forgotten, but we, we uh, go through this chapter, and what we see here, what we're going to see is the accounts of various responses to people towards Gideon, and the victory, and to me, this chapter is about like the danger of success. <laughs> I don't know if we ever think about that, but there's like danger in success. There's danger in winning victories and winning battles when we have success in the Lord. You know, one of the times that we are most vulnerable as followers of Jesus is after those times of victory and success in winning one for Jesus and for the kingdom. You know, there's a story of a great preacher whom you probably have heard of, Charles Spurgeon. If you've kicked around the church any time in your life, you, you know Charles Spurgeon, one of the great, called the Prince of Preachers, one of the great communicator, communicators of God's word. See, I can't even say communicator, so I'm not counted in that class. Uh, one of the great communicators of God's word over the millennia. And he preached brilliant sermon after brilliant sermon. And one day, just another Sunday for him, he preached one, knocked it out of the park, home runner, grand slam. A woman from his church approached him and she was just buttering him up and giving all the flowers and telling him how wonderful and how wonderful the message and how wonderful you are, Mr. Spurgeon. Mr. Spurgeon, you are wonderful. To which he replied this, Madam, the devil whispered the same thing in my ears when I left the pulpit. See, there's danger. There is danger in the midst of victory and on the grounds of of winning one for the kingdom. And so there's uh, a number of tests here that Gideon faces. I think we can learn some things from. And the first test I would call this is the test of criticism. And it comes from amongst his own people. Check it out, verse one. It says this. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you've done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Now, so this is kind of the first conflict situation that Gideon 
finds himself in, and it's this test of being criticized by his own. Ephraim was one of the most powerful tribes amongst Israel for some reason. When Gideon blew that trumpet and called the armies of Israel, the men of Israel together, uh, to form that army against the Midianites, Ephraim didn't come. Text doesn't tell us why. I don't know if he didn't invite them or what the deal was. They were, well, here's what I would say about Ephraim. Ephraim was amongst the most powerful tribes in all of Israel. And maybe they wouldn't have marched under the command of this man, Gideon, from this small little clan in the tribe of Manasseh, this man who came from the weakest of clans. Whatever it is, they didn't come to join the army of Israel in this battle against, Gideon, with, against the Midianites. And so they brought this criticism against Gideon. Why did you call us? Now, it's interesting that this deliverance, we know this, was not about the power of Israel. Here we talk about Ephraim being so powerful. This was not about the power of God's people. This victory was about the deliverance of the Lord. It was about the power of God. Winning battle, winning this battle against the Midianites by the power of this great strong tribe would have caused Israel to boast that their own hand had saved them. And this was the Lord's battle. This was the whole point of what was going on with Gideon. This was the very reason God had already whittled their army down from 32,000 to 300. Because the Lord said, I don't want you to boast that your own strength won this battle. And so for them... You know, for Ephraim, maybe you would say this, the test was, could they, could they cope with someone else's success? Could they cope with someone else's victory? They had maybe had wounded pride that they had not been invited to battle. So Gideon reminds them, look it, in the midst of this, yeah, we smashed some pitchers and, and blew our trumpets and gave the shout, but the Lord drove the princes, these two commanders, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And you're the ones who slayed them, not not me. So there's no need for either side to be jealous. We don't need to compete against one another or be jealous of one another. You know, maybe you're thinking you've been handed the leftovers. But I was not handed, Gideon says, these, these princes. They were given into your hand, into the hand of Ephraim. And he says to them, what have I done in comparison to you, man? I'm just from the weakest of tribes. It's interesting In scripture, actually, one of the characteristics of the tribe of Ephraim is that they will always complain. Just check it out. When you like read the stories through the Bible, you'll find this out about Ephraim. They will always show up with the criticism or the complaint or whatever it is. We don't want that to be us. Boy, I wouldn't want to be that, do you? I don't want to be that. We don't want to be the, the one who always shows up with the criticism. God had won a great victory for Israel and Ephraim was just finding something I would say to be disagreeable about rather than celebrating the victory, they were criticizing the strategy. And it was God who had given the strategy. It was God's war. It was God's battle. The the victory had been won by the hand of the Lord, not by Gideon. And it's awesome here that Gideon here is just a wonderful example to us. It's like there are times when he is not a good example, but here he is. He isn't offended. He, He deals with the whole situation That's like potential conflict and potential trouble between him and the tribe of Ephraim. And he does so with wisdom and the whole thing is dissolved and he heads off in pursuit of the Midianite kings who have have escaped with their remaining army of 15,000. And they've, they've headed east across the Jordan River. And so Gideon heads out in pursuit of them and he's led to another group of people, and it's a group of people, some folks that just are refusing to cooperate with him. Let's check it out. It's interesting. Verse four, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, and he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I'm pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give army to your bread? Sorry, give bread to your army. Verse 7. So Gideon said, Well then, the Lord has given 
well then, the, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Wow, okay, crazy. So here is Gideon. It's a little group of 300. And they arrive at Sukkoth, and Gideon says to this town on the eastern side of the Jordan, my men are hungry. We're pursuing the enemy. Give them something to eat so that we can continue on in what the Lord has called us to do. And, and the men of Sukkoth, they're like this. They're like, ah, not so fast there, Gideon. You haven't won victory yet. We don't want to get involved. You know, we've been brutalized by the Midianites for years. I think about this city, like being on the eastern side every time, the eastern side of Israel, every time the Midianites would come over the seven years where they had been brutalizing and oppressing the people of God and stealing and taking everything that they had, this city would have been one of the ones that faced them first. And I get the sense that they're saying this, you know, Gideon, if you lose... (laughs) It's not you who's going to pay the price next time. When the enemy comes around, it's us. We're going to pay the price for what you're doing. And so we're not getting involved. And so Gideon says to them, okay, well, when the Lord hands those kings over to me, I'll be back and I'll teach you a lesson. And so here is this city of Israelites. They didn't want to help Gideon because they didn't want to risk standing uh, They didn't want to risk their standing with the Midianite kings. And it's interesting, what happens is this, is that they lose on both sides, you know. They pick this position where they're like, okay, well, it's a foot over here. Let's kind of protect our relationship and potentially what could happen with the Midianites. And let's, uh, you know, put a foot over here with, with Israel. And they end up losing on both sides. You know, that's how it goes in life. That's how it goes in life. When you try to straddle two sides, two worlds, the danger is this, that you can miss out on both. Jesus said this, you can't be hot, you gotta be hot or cold. You can't be lukewarm. If you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And they seem to take this lukewarm position. That's what I would say. And then then we read on in verse eight. He comes to a second city. And from there, he went up to Penuel. And he spoke in the same way. Way And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So here's Gideon, you know, he's like pursuing these enemies, these kings, this army of 15,000 people. The task looks impossible. Like we saw last week and like I mentioned this morning, they're outnumbered 450 to 1. But God's called him to this. And this city, these folks that he meets did not want to risk having to deal with Midian should Gideon lose. And Gideon on this point, you know, maybe you read this and you go, he failed or whatever. I, I don't know. I, like, I have to say, I just kind of bounce around a little bit on some of the decisions that Gideon makes. He doesn't say to them, Look, we've defeated these guys when we were outnumbered 450 to 1. This is God's battle, not mine. God in his grace has given us victory so far. And in his grace, he's he's helped. And I'm not going in my strength, but I'm going in the strength of the Lord. No, he almost seems to, you know, rise up. Maybe a little bit of pride, as you and I are prone to do. He says, you doubt me? I'll show you. (laughs) That's never a good position for us to land in, right? To take that Hard attitude, you know, you doubt me, well then I'll show you, I'll stick it to you. When I get back, you're gonna pay. Now I I, I actually don't think that when Gideon returns, this is like a personal vendetta we're gonna read about when he returns against these two cities. It seems to me more like it's a judicial sentence. Remember, this man, he's a judge. God is using him to carry out the judicial sentences of heaven, man against the Midianites, against the Midianites, but here the same judicial sentence seems to be handed out on those who will oppose the mission of God. It's not that they were opposing Gideon here, these two cities. They were opposing what God was doing. And the situation is different than that of Ephraim who criticized Gideon. It wasn't that Ephraim was unwilling to participate. Their criticism was, they said, you didn't invite us to the battle. 
But these two cities said, we don't want any part of the battle. Unwillingness to participate, refusal to cooperate, not with Gideon, but with what the Lord was doing. Now check out verse 10. It tells us about these Midianite kings. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army of about 15, their army about 15,000 men. All who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. The Midianite army, remember that? They were 135,000, there's 15,000 left. Verse 11, and Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba to Jokbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Now, to give you a sense just geographically, what Gideon has accomplished, he has traveled 250 kilometers in pursuit. Imagine that. Probably on foot. 250 kilometers in pursuit of this enemy. The Midianites, many of them probably escaped on camelback because the text talks about camels here. We're going to read it. And we, when we, we heard that when the Midian, in, in chapter 7, when this army came, they had camels like the sand on the seashore. I mean, they were loaded up with weaponry and all the resources. And they escaped this great distance. And it's interesting, the text tells us that they felt that they were secure. <laughs> you know, they had removed themselves far enough from the situation, put enough distance between themselves and the judgment of God that, they were going to be all right. And so this is like, I, I read this, I think, man, what persistence on the part of Gideon. And sometimes that's what God's work calls for. It calls for a heart of persistence. To, keep, to be of those who keep on going and going and going. Gideon did, and he captures these kings. Now we read on, verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle, from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man from Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them, he taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. Wow. Just to give you a sense of what that was, that was an ancient Near East practice where you would take a man, you would strip him down, you'd make him lie face down on the ground, and you would take the thorns and the briars of the earth, and you'd give that man a beating with it. You'd teach him a lesson. And then the practice was that often these men would be dragged around in the dirt till they were near death. Wow, this is harsh by Gideon. It's, it's harsh, but I, I, I don't think it's just his pride. I think he's doing something as a judicial sentence from the Lord. And it tells us in verse 17, he also went to the city of Penuel and he broke down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men of the city. And that's brutal. And so again, you know, I may, might ask this, why didn't Gideon show the same kindness that he showed to the people of Ephraim when they criticized? And I think the reason has to be this, is that these two cities were rebelling against what God was doing. They were rebelling against God's chosen leader in this sense, and they were helping the enemy by doing so, and it was treason against God. It was hardness of the human hard against those who were leading them. And, and what good was it for Gideon and his men to risk their lives for these folks? You know, I, I like just going through this text, obviously I, I think about so many things that are going on in the province and in the country and the things that we're dealing with. And, and it's like, I, I, I look at these reactions, I'm like, man, sometimes these texts, I'm like, how do we end up here, Lord, on this Sunday as I read this? And I think, wow, this is why, you know, as a church, we need discernment from the Lord on the decisions that we're facing, that we have to navigate. 
But yeah, you know, you could be personally insulted. That's one thing. Like you could face criticism. <laughs> but rebellion against the Lord is entirely something different and we're trying to navigate all that. And You know, I wonder what's going to happen in BC. I have to tell you that. I was totally convinced that prior today, I told the elders this last week, I was convinced that prior today, there would already be a ruling and we would like know what we're dealing with from the province with regards to the gathering of the church, that there would be some announcement. And I, I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful. I would say that I, that I think actually the fact that we haven't had an announcement yet is maybe good for the prospects of the church being able to gather, hanging on to hope for that. But you know, as I think about it, I, I, I want to comment on this. I think it's like important. It's like necessary. It has to be discussed. And I, I, like I have to tell you that in good conscience before the Lord, I can't say that it's not right for the people of God not to gather. You know, God in his wisdom has established three institutions that are his institutions that he put in place for the function of human society. They're the family, the church, and civil government. And their authority, each of their authority and each of their sphere of influence has been given by God. Like, let me give you an example. Like, let's talk about your family and your house. Look it. I have no right no place. I'm not going to show up your, at your house and tell your family what to do. I'm not going to do it. That's not, that's not my spot, you know? I would not dare to usurp the parental authority or the authority of a man of a house in the leading of his own personal house. Now, I might have some fun. Believe me, you know, I've been known to slide cookies and treats to kids around here when parents aren't looking. I might, I might, I might do that. But I'm not going to usurp parental authority. And God has established the man as the head of the home and together with his wife, they rule over their children. And the purpose is this, is that godly children would be brought forth from that family. And as your pastor, my job is not to come to your house and to tell you how to run your house. Now, if there was something immoral going on, if there was something evil happening, then the scripture directs that the elders of the church should get involved and they should bring discipline, they should bring instruction, maybe they need to bring protection if that was necessary. You know, if something is out of order in your house, the civil government will come. They will send the RCMP. They will send social workers and they will get involved with your family. But at the end of the day, the truth is, and the reality is this, is that your home is your home. Your family is your family. Your marriage is your marriage. And the man of your house will answer to God for his leadership. I'm not going to answer for that man. I'm not going to answer for the husband in your house. He will answer to the Lord for himself. See, the family is God's institution, as is civil government. Civil government is God's institution. God established government. Now, whether that government acknowledges him or not is up to them. You know, we had the blessing to vote. I'm so thankful for that in our country, to share our opinion, to vote on the basis of party platforms and all of these things, but ultimately, God establishes government. And yes, government answers to the people of Canada and the people of British Columbia, but ultimately, they answer to God. They answer to the Lord. As a pastor, as your pastor, I don't go to Victoria and tell Mr. Horgan how to run his government. I'll give my opinion, I'll send my letter. I'll try to point out to them biblical values, but at the end of the day, He's the man God has placed in leadership. God has established him. And he will answer to God for his leadership. The family, the government, are God-ordained institutions. And guess what? So is the church. 
government, family, and the church. And out of those three institutions, there is only one that the Lord says is his bride that he has given to his son. That his, there's one whom has been betrothed to his son, Jesus. The body of which he is the head. Now just like as a pastor, I can't tell you how to run your family. I can't expect to lead the government. In the same way, I would tell you the government cannot expect to lead the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church and the Holy Spirit has chosen men, elders in the body of Christ to lead the local church in the pursuit of the Great Commission. Now at the end of the day, your family will not answer to God for the church. And at the end of the day, the government will not answer to God for the church. The elders of the church will answer for the church. I as your pastor in fear and trembling tell you I will answer. I will answer. And I don't take that lightly. I'm shaking right now in my boots. (laughs) No joke. You know, we use an illustration around our church about a disciple. And what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, I want to remind you, we, we use this illustration of a wheel. Remember the wheel? We use it all the time in our church, and it gives us a clear picture of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And the wheel, this illustration of a wheel has six parts to it. It has a hub, which we said is this, the hub of the church, the hub of the disciple is Jesus. He's at the center. Jesus is at the center of all that we do. And the rim on the outside, the part of, we say this, the rubber meets the road is where our obedience touches this earth. We're, We're Jesus We answer to Jesus, and then we obediently live for him in this world. And connecting the hub to the outer rim, there's four spokes, we say. Four things that are crucial characteristics in the life of every man or woman who follows Jesus. Those spokes, the word, the foundational spoke, prayer, those have to do with our our vertical relationship with the Lord, and then how we relate to one another. The the, the two spokes are evangelism or witnessing. That's how we relate to those who don't know Jesus. And fellowship, how we're called to relate to those who do know Jesus. Now I would say this, when the government seeks to command the church in any one of those areas, they are stepping outside the bounds of their God-given authority. So that means as a church, we have to navigate this graciously. And lovingly, with consideration, and we have to be led by the Spirit. We recognize there's a unique situation happening in the world, like it's, it's unique. There's a virus out there, the government has said, the church can't meet. And I'll tell you, they've stepped outside their realm of authority. I get passionate about this, I'm not seeking to be arrogant or prideful. I want to walk in humility before the Lord, but I have to be obedient, church. I have to be. We believe the kingdom of God is here, present on the earth. We believe the call is urgent. We believe that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. We believe that we are called to be salt and light. We believe in the Father. We believe in the Son who paid the penalty for the sin of mankind, gave his life on the cross for the salvation of all who would put their faith and trust in him. Jesus was raised from the dead and he's ascended to heaven where he sits at his Father's right hand. We believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Bible is the God-breathed, inspired word of God. We preach the love of God We believe that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would be saved and receive the gift of eternal life. We believe there has to be repentance of sin. We believe that there has to be a turning in faith to Christ Jesus. We believe that there's no one greater than Jesus. We 
we proclaim Jesus is the savior of the world. We practice the command to be baptized in water, to be identified with the crucified and risen Jesus. We believe in the Lord's table, that Jesus' body is true bread and that his blood is true drink. We believe in the kingdom of heaven and the almighty supreme rule of God. We believe in the word. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe that we're called to share the gospel and we believe that the church is called to gather in fellowship. And our love for God and our love for one another is too great to set such things aside. I would just tell you, for me, this is like not a discussion about rights whatsoever. In fact, I think the second we go there, we've lost the argument. We've lost the discussion. This is about love and the headship of Jesus Christ. This is not about the Charter of Rights. This is not about the Constitution. This is not about the Criminal Code of Canada, Canada, which protects clergy and religious gatherings from being disrupted. This is an issue of obedience, not to government, but to God. Because Jesus is the head of the church. And Jesus said that he would plunder the gates of hell for his church. You know, I think about the Bible, (laughs) so many illustrations of these things. Jeremiah, his scroll was brought to King Jehoiakim. And as the scroll was read to Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim cut off sections of the word of God, the scroll of the Lord, and he threw it into the fire. He said, you tell Jeremiah to shut up. He's not to speak. No more proclaiming the word of the Lord. (laughs) Jeremiah said, the word of God's like a fire inside of me. I can't, I can't help but speak the word of God. Daniel was told, you pray, Daniel. If you pray, you're only to pray to the government ordered direction to the king. And if you do anything otherwise, you will be thrown into a den of lions. And Daniel went home to his house And three times a day, as was his practice, he opened the curtains of his house. He faced Jerusalem and he got down on his face before the God whom he served. And he prayed as was the practice of his life. Peter and John were told, stop preaching the name of Jesus. No more witnessing. You are not allowed to witness They said, you stop preaching that name of Jesus and they responded to those who instructed them. They said, you judge for yourselves whether it's right, whether we obey you or obey God. We are preaching salvation in Jesus. You know, I think of the early church, the Sanhedrin tried to stop them. They were arrested. They were martyred. Saul ravaged the church. The Bible tells us that King Herod laid violent hands on them. In every city, they were scoffed and persecuted and imprisoned. They stood and were brought before councils and tribunals and governors and emperors. And you know what they didn't do? They did not neglect meeting together. I love the story. I mean, it's just an extra one for fun. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, come on with their worship. You will bow down and worship what you're told. He said, no. We can't. Before God, we can't. He said, we will not bow. Throw us into your furnace. God is able to save us. And even if he doesn't, we worship him alone. And you know the story. Church, these things have to be considered. We're called to honor Jesus. And as your pastor, like on behalf, we need your prayers. We need your prayers. If there's anything we would cover right now, so that God would give wisdom. Boy, I'm praying that the Lord would just guide the hand of the government. I'm, I'm like hopeful that they will not continue to crack down. But if they do, it's not a matter of if, church. It's a matter of when. And we need to be led of the Holy Spirit.
Let's read on in the text, okay? I hope that's fun discussion. I like discussing those things. It's not easy, but let's read on. What happens here? Remember Gideon, this is after victory. There's just dangers for him because the, gra- the ground of victory has landmines all around it. Verse 18, then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, what a name, Zalmunna. <laughs> Where are the men you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said to them, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Let me read on for the sake of time here. Verse 20. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man, so is his strength. And Gideon arose, and he killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Man, Gideon's son's afraid. He's still, he's still a young man. So it's left to Gideon to slay these men, of whom at one time he was also afraid. He lived in terror, hide, hiding in a wine press for fear of these men, but God's done something in the heart of this man. And I love that picture. You see this? These are, these are moon worshipers, these Midianites. Crescent, crescent symbols hanging on their camels. And then we come to this other test. Another test of victory. I would call it the test of, I don't know, maybe personal popularity. You're so awesome, Gideon. You're doing this. You're like so awesome. That's, that's a landmine. Check out verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Man, this is amazing because it's like, here it is. This is the first time actually that God's people recorded in the scripture. They say, we want a king. We want a human king. They give credit to Gideon for the victory. But Gideon was not confused about whose victory it was. The Lord had secured his victory for his people. And this is the first time in scripture Israel asked for a king and they're failing to recognize that God is their king. They wanted a human king like the nations around them. But I love this. Gideon said, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Isn't it true that it's the Lord who rules over our lives? Not the church, not the government. The Lord is the one who rules over us as individuals and he's to rule over his church. And it's interesting, there is something in the heart of mankind that loves to have a human rule over them. Just tell me what to do. Because we're all looking for direction. We're all looking for guidance in life. We're all looking for a path. It's easier to say to a person, tell me what to do, than to seek the Lord and say, Lord, you tell me what to do. You tell me. And I'll obey. Father, what is your desire for me and your will for me in this situation? And Gideon, again here, with great wisdom, says, I will not rule. The Lord is your ruler. He'll rule over you. But this is where Gideon makes a mistake, I think. Right here. Backs up, and there's another landmine. It's this one, financial gain. He took the opportunity to get rich, though he didn't take the opportunity to be king. Look what happens. Verse 24, Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered him, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pennants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. This is 40 pounds, about 40 pounds of just gold earrings, okay? 
Here's Gideon. He uses the position to enrich himself. Now let's see what happens. Verse 27. This is tragic. And Gideon made an ephod of it. He put it in his city, in Orpah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Here's Gideon. What he does is this, is he takes this gold and he fashions an ephod. Now an ephod was a garment worn by the high priest. In fact, at the tabernacle, where the priest would bring the sacrifices before the Lord to seek the face of the Lord, the, the, the priest, the high priest, would wear an ephod and the ephod was used to discern the counsel of the Lord, to discern the direction of the Lord. What was his wisdom and his heart for a certain situation? And this ephod had stones on it. And, you know, it's really cool to read about it in the scripture. We don't totally know how, how it works, but it had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it had two other stones uh, that they believe were a black stone and a white stone. And God would use this ephod in his presence as the high priest would come in and, and consult the Lord and seek the Lord and ask for the Lord's direction. The Lord would somehow communicate through these stones. They think maybe a light would shine on it and they'd get a yes or a no and the Lord would say this tribe, that tribe. And God would direct them. It was for counsel, for wisdom, for discerning the mind of the Lord, the judgment of God. And here's Gideon, he's a judge, and somehow he, for some reason, he, he makes this ephod, and he steps into the role of a priest, and he says, you can come to me, and I will tell you the mind of God. I will tell you the purposes of God. And the scripture just says that Israel whored after this thing. They, they prostituted themselves. It became an idol in their life, and it was a snare for Gideon, his his power, his position became a snare for him and it was a snare for his family as well. Now for the sake of time, we're, we're, I'm, I'm not gonna go on. We'll, we'll, we'll lay up there. But let me tell you the last line mine, landmine. What is, you can go ahead and read for yourself. You check it out, we'll pick it up next Sunday. It's the danger of Retirement. The danger of retirement. Gideon got through some of these tests well, but there are other spots where he tripped up. He messed up. Church, in times of success and victory, we are vulnerable to criticism. We are vulnerable to those who will not cooperate. There is the danger of popularity. There is the danger of enriching ourselves. There is the danger of idolatry. There is the danger of just settling into spiritual retirement as we're going to see happens with Gideon coming week. There's dangers. The only way to navigate these things is to be seeking the heart and mind of the Lord. Walk humbly before Him. To walk humbly before Him. To seek His face. I'm so thankful because the Bible tells us that though Gideon failed... There's a judge who came. The one to whom all judgment has been given. His name is Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus is going to judge the nations. He's going to judge individuals and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the dividing point for those who would be counted as sheep and those who would be counted as goats is this, that those who've put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. They've acknowledged who Jesus is. That he is the son of God, son of man, come to save the world. And for us here this morning, as we like just worship and spend time in the word, what, what we always want to do and where we always want to end is with fixing our eyes on Jesus. <laughs> I got some Gideon in me. You got some Gideon in you. Thankfully, there's one who's come to save us from ourselves, King Jesus. And his word tells us that if we'll repent of our sin, if we'll turn from our sin and turn, confess him as Lord and 
Respond to him in faith for his work of salvation, the cross, his death, his resurrection, that we will be given the gift of eternal life. It's the greatest victory of all. The advent, Jesus came so that you might have peace. And so this morning, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. They're gonna kind of scramble up here. And we're coming to the Lord's table this morning. And, uh, and so if you're at home, you could grab those communion elements. I'm gonna take you to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, we got our little sealed communion things here, the ladies behind me and myself. will just crack into them. They're squeaky and noisy. And this is one of the things we get to celebrate as God's people, to come to the table of the Lord, to meet with the Lord and to have fellowship with Him, with one another. And... Uh, This is God's command to his church. This is Jesus' command to the church that the church meet him at the table and do these things in remembrance of his death but also in proclamation of his coming. I love the Lord's table. I love that about the Lord's table that it's like it looks in two directions. It looks back to the cross and says, Jesus, we remember what you've done for us but it also looks forward in great hope and says, Jesus, and we're so pumped you're coming again. Maranatha. Jesus is coming again. And so this morning, um, as we come, we, we partake of the cup and the bread. These things represent, the cup represents the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for the sin of mankind. The, the bread represents his body, which was broken and beaten, punished in our place. And we partake of these things to say to Jesus in our relationship with him, Jesus, you're my true food. You're my true drink. I'm trusting in you for life. I look to the cross. Thank you for forgiveness. I look forward to your coming. And I thank you that that's coming again. And the place where I meet you is in the very thing you did to save me at the cross.